I'll give it just a second to make sure that we've got time for it to get on. I do need it streaming on all the different platforms here. Your page, you're streaming, you're live. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we are doing a debate on the uh, Prick Adulteri with Dr. Stephen Boyce and Dr. Jeff Riddle. Um, so it should be a good, uh, a good debate, and the thesis for the debate is actually going to be this. It's, it's worded, is the PA an authentic part of John's Gospel? The PA should be rejected on external, internal, and historical grounds. So Stephen's going to be taking the affirmative and going first, while Jeff is going to take the negative, he's going to go second. And uh, when we come back, um, I'm going to give you the rundown on what the, uh, what the itinerary looks like as far as um, the date itself. Stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you is punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for, uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, welcome back. And uh, Jonathan, just since you're watching, thanks for complimenting me on my haircut. I haven't had a haircut in about two months. And I finally got one, so I'm pretty excited nice. about that. Um, but anyways, all right, so let me kind of give you an update on what's coming up real before we do this. I want to kind of show you what to expect in a few weeks, and I'll give you the number to call in at the end, and I'll explain that as well. On the 31st, I'm doing a debate on the Eucharist with Matthew Broderick. On June 7th, uh, me and Stephen Boyce are going to do a debate on total inability. And then on June 14th, uh, me and Stacy Turbinville are going to do a debate on eschatology. So I'll give you an update on that at the end as well. That way you can get those dates um, and put them in your calendar. I've still got to figure out how to do the scheduling within my software program. I, I know a lot of you guys are requesting, like, hey, I need a link for the debate tonight. Um, and it, I, I just haven't figured out how to get them scheduled since it streams in multiple platforms. So there's a way to do it, but I'll figure it out. So... Anyways, there is going to be a chance at the end for you guys if you are watching live and you would like to participate in the question and answer session uh, with uh, Dr. Jeff, Jeff Riddle, or Dr. Stephen Boyce, you can call in at the end. It's going to be 20 minutes. Those who call in are going to have the priority over those who 
uh, just type in a message. So if you want to get a question and you really want to get it in, make sure you call in. And that number is, put that up there for you. It's 816-866-0025. So make sure you keep track of that number. I'll put it up at the end uh, of the debate as well. So you'll see that on your screen and you can call in if you would like to. Um, and uh, that's going to be, we're going to try to keep that right around 20 minutes. I know there's been a lot of interaction on, on this particular debate already with uh, a lot of people um, kind of putting in uh, the evidence for uh, the PA or against the PA. And um, so there's going to be a lot of questions, no doubt. But all right, so let's jump into it. Let me pull this off the screen and I'm going to pull up uh, Jeff and Steven and then we can give the itinerary what it's going to look like tonight and go from there. So I've got you guys up on the screen. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Stephen, for joining. I'm looking forward to it. Good to be here. Good to be here, Josh. Awesome. All right. So let me, uh, I've got to say this before we get, before we actually get into the debate, we, we worked really hard to nail down a thesis for this debate tonight. And I, I think that we did a good job. I think we've got it where we want it um, on the wording. And it, pay real close attention to how it's worded, because it, what you'll be able to come away with is a better understanding for what's being claimed um, by those who believe it's not a passage that was written by John and not meant to be included in the inspired scripture, while the other side would show and contend that it is original and that it is inspired and should continue to be in our translations and preached in our churches as scripture, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as scripture. Uh, but let me let me just thesis and just pay attention to how it's worded. It says, "Is the PA an authentic part of John's gospel?" So that's going to be a question for the first part. The second part is going to be a statement that says this: the PA should be rejected on external, internal, and historical grounds. So Stephen Boyce is going to take the affirmative. Jeff Riddle is going to take the negative there. And one thing I want to tell you all watching live, whatever reason, the last Facebook update that Facebook did doesn't allow me to share my links uh, in multiple groups at once anymore. So if you can share that link, that would help me out a lot to get the word out there uh, because now I, I've got to do it individually and that's fine too. So, all right, so I do, um, I do want to ask you guys this uh, for you, Jeff, and for you, Stephen, and then, and then I'll give the, the schedule what it's going to look like. But, and Jeff, if you can answer it first and then Stephen, how did this kind of a debate become something that would interest you, and why do you believe it's worth contending for? I mean, this experience of being on your no. podcast tonight. No. I mean, no, I mean, I mean the just. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so why am I interested in the text of Scripture? I mean, my interest came uh, from my experience as a pastor. I'm a pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And uh, I've been in ministry for about 30 years. I was a missionary in Eastern Europe and then pastoring local churches. And as a pastor, I had to preach um, uh, through books of the Bible. I do expositional preaching. And one of the things I had to do was establish the text and figure out, and I went through phases in this. I know Stephen, I saw on his uh, on his website, he shared about some of his journey, maybe from Independent Fundamental Baptist to where he is now. And um, I sort of was on a journey as well. I sort of maybe went the opposite way. I mean, I, I had grown up in a conservative traditional church, 
I'd gone to a moderate liberal seminary, and as a pastor, uh, I sort of rediscovered uh, my love for Scripture, my love for the exposition of Scripture, and my reverence for it. But as a pastor, just having to understand what the parameters of the text uh, are so that I could I could preach it. And um, that brought me to, you know, particular convictions. I believe in the confessional text or the traditional text uh, with respect to the New Testament. The I affirm and defend the, the Texas Receptus. And um, I, I've just, uh, the more I've studied it, the more confirmed I am that that is the proper text of the Bible, of the scriptures. And so I'm happy to defend uh, the Pericope Adulteri, because it is part of the confessional text of Scripture. Awesome. Hey, Stephen, how would you answer that? Well, my interest uh, when I was a pastor came towards my whole life. I grew up and, and believed and defended the Texas Receptus. <clears throat> I believe that was the Word of God, word for word, a replica of the original autograph. I was trained that way. I was taught that way. And I have, I, I like... I have no problem with people who hold the TR in high value. Um, my dad, my uncle are strong defenders of the Texas Receptus, and they're God-fearing men who love me and love others and share the gospel. It's not an issue of fellowship with us at all. Um, but as I grew up in that environment of believing those things, as I began to study for myself, in fact, I read numerous of Dr. Riddle's work. Um, when I was going through those college years, I read a lot of his, his blog and uh, used a lot of his arguments. And then when I got to a certain point where I started noticing that the King James didn't line up exactly with the TR in places, it kind of started an investigation for me. Then I realized, hey, there isn't even one single TR. There's numerous TRs, numerous editions of the TR, and they don't all read the same. And it became a journey, and and uh, it was a very stressful time for me. But um, after I realized that I actually had a very narrow view of inspiration and a very narrow view of even preservation, as I began to study um, passages like this were painful to study because I had a prejudice and my prejudice was to make this fit. When I left the TR, I had some inconsistencies in the TR, so I instantly became majority text. Uh, that lasted about a year and this was still the majority text. It had some problems, but it was there. And then I started studying more and more. And next thing you know, I'm critical text. So I had a journey through all this and it wasn't easy no, I didn't walk out, and I, I mentioned this in my article that I wrote on this. At the end of the day, I was actually very disappointed with what I found because my bias and presupposition would have been to include a story as awesome as this one into the text of Scripture. But at the end of the day, my goal is not what I want or what traditionally may have been. What is the evidence that points to John wrote this story. And if the scripture is a human and a divine book, that both those elements will be able to substantiate themselves in time and space. Jesus was the eternal word who came into time and space. He left here with scars. Uh, I expect his word to remain with variances and scars, but they're evidence of the divine truth that God would protect and preserve his word 
What did that look like in time and space? What did that look like in history? This is a battle that's been going on. This text has been discussed for many years. I certainly do not believe Dr. Riddle and I are going to solve the problems for everybody on both sides tonight. But we certainly can listen to one another and engage one another and challenge one another and show what we've studied and give that as the evidence of what John wrote. And that's really what brought me into this is getting to the truth of the matter. Okay, that's good. Hey, I appreciate you guys both answering on uh, that question. Um, let me follow that up um, with uh, kind of where people can get familiar with your work. Um, I know, Jeff, you've got, you've got a website, and looks like recently you've started your own YouTube channel. Um, why don't you tell people where they can access what you have, what, I, what your work, your YouTube channel, that kind of thing, if you would <laughs> for a second. Right. So, um, of course, my first calling is to be a pastor of my church, but part of the ministry is writing and speaking. And um, so I have a blog, jeffriddle.net. Had it for a long time. I think it's 2006. And um, I, yes, I've it when he was in college. It's interesting. And um, then I have a podcast called uh, Word Magazine. Uh, an occasional podcast, and uh, a lot of those are on um, text criticism issues, but not all of them. And um, I uh, also, as you said, recently, just like last week, started a uh, YouTube channel called Word Magazine. I'm trying to begin putting uh, some videos up. And one of the other things I'm doing right now is I'm also doing a podcast on Eusebius's ecclesiastical history. So I've been uh, for about a year and a half going through. Uh, there are ten books total in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, and I just finished uh, book seven, chapter twenty-five. So I'm hoping maybe by the end of the year I can I can complete. So I. I'm reading uh, through Eusebius and then offering some notes and commentary for people who are interested in uh, church history. So Eusebius was the father of church history. So uh, those are some things that I do. The podcast can be found uh, on sermonaudio.com and my sermons can be found there and teachings and book reviews and other things. And uh, it, the podcast is also available on Apple iTunes. So that's a little bit about me and my material. Awesome. Hey, Stephen, if you could do the same, where can people get familiar with your work and uh, all that stuff as well? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm here in Greenville, uh, Spartanburg, Greenville, South Carolina, the upstate of South Carolina. Um, I attend the most awesome, most uh, God-sent church I've ever been a part of, Fellowship Greenville. Um, Charlie Boyd is uh, the lead elder there. Tremendous church, um, strong exposition, great community. Um, I'm plugged in locally here, but uh, my good friends all moved out west to Seattle where they are church planting uh, out there and working in a pretty atheistic, agnostic uh, world. And I take regular trips out there um, and I write for them. Uh, it doesn't always have to be apologetics. I do research and apologetics for them. Sometimes it's devotionals, things like that. So just about everything I write, uh, as of right now, uh, that's relevant to either apologetics or just spiritual interpretation or spiritual encouragement or biblical interpretation, exegesis, any kind of permanent and all and uh, like Seattle. Uh, doc, be there. 
He's a tremendous saint of God doing a great work there in Seattle. And uh, the church is doing very well, uh, even in this, uh, you know, they were kind of the epicenter for the virus that went on. In fact, I was scheduled to fly out there with a friend of mine. Uh, my friend Matt and I were supposed to fly out right when it started spreading. So we ended up staying put, but I plan to be out there soon. But most of my work that's in research and apologetics can be found with City Light Seattle Ministries uh, there on the website. You can go through all the different blogs. There's other guys, Ian Hunter. Uh, and Chris Sawyer, others in the field that work in the apologetic side of that church plant. Um, you have article after article and blog and video there. Uh, John Bauer as well. There's tremendous guys and girls that are out there doing a work for God. And they wanted to have an apologetics ministry so that they were open to the community of atheists, open to uh, the community of skeptics to ask questions about the Bible without having to feel bad about it and welcoming them in and answering any questions they have. And these are the kinds of questions that come up by atheists. And most of that is due to Bart Ehrman's work. Um, they've read his work or familiarized themselves with his videos. And so it creates opportunities to talk about textual criticism with the unbelievers, with uh, skeptics, and be able to discuss these kind of matters in a realm of apologetics as well. So it's been, in, it's been, it's been a blast. It really has. The Lord's been good. All right, that is good. Hey, thanks for that, guys. And uh, let's jump into it, um, and I'll give the itinerary what, what the schedule is going to look like here. So the schedule for the debate is going to look like this. We've got opening statements, 15 minutes for each. Stephen will take the affirmative and, and go first. Jeff will take the negative and go second. Then immediately after that, we'll go into five minutes of rebuttals for each person as well, affirmative and then negative. And then we'll, uh, we'll follow up with cross-examination. This, this time we're going to switch it up. Jeff is going to go first, and then Stephen will follow up with that 15 minutes for each person as well. Then we're going to do five-minute closing statements, and then open up to 20 minutes from for questions from the audience. So uh, one thing I did want to mention, if you guys get a chance to, go check out the debate that Stephen did with Leighton Flowers last night on the Gospel Truth. That was a, a debate on, on uh, total depravity or total inability. And I watched that. It was a really good debate. I think both sides... Did a really good job representing their position, and uh, now you're you're back doubling it up tonight. So you got another big debate tonight, and I know you're you've been having some issues with your voice holding up too. So hopefully all that'll uh, be able to play out and pan out. I'm sure this will be a great debate tonight as well. So with that said, um, I'm going to turn it over to you, Stephen, and you've got 15 minutes. Let me get the timer up here so we can see that as well. Ever you're ready. Sure. I think when an exam textual variant like this, we need to ask ourselves this question. Is it possible that a story about Jesus could have survived antiquity with being true and valid, but not a part of scripture? I think if we look at the gospel narrative of John himself, he said many things were done by Jesus that the books and libraries could not contain. So obviously there's real life examples of the ministry, words, teachings, miracles of Jesus that certainly could have survived on a historical level. And that's something that we need to examine. Now, this can be an emotionally charged debate. And what we have to do, and this is difficult, and this is a struggle even for me, is to try to leave our precepts and our emotions out the door for a minute and just look at the evidence. Because this can really get hot and, and become a division amongst Christians where it really should not be. We should state our opinion, show our evidence, walkway brothers and sisters. I used to joke and, and uh, I used to say this about the story of the woman caught in adultery. I don't know who's at a greater risk of being stoned. 
the woman caught in adultery or the tech critic who doesn't believe the story of the woman caught in adultery belongs in John. Uh, somebody's liable to get hurt in a debate like this. I recognize I'm typically on the negative side of this because we champion this story. We want it to exist in the text. And to be fair, I did as want. I, I did as well. I wanted this text to be authentic to John. But at the end of the day, what is the basis of the evidence that demonstrates that this story belongs in the gospel narrative of John? So we have to examine a couple things. Number one, is there external evidence for John writing the Pericope? It's interesting, the first witness that we have of this story is not from a manuscript, it's from a witness of a church father named Papias, or uh, if you've read, in fact, it's interesting, Dr. Riddle's been working through the uh, history of the church by Eusebius. He records evidence of Papias, or Papias, however you want to pronounce his name, stating that there was a story of a woman who was caught in many sins, didn't mention adultery, who was brought before the Lord, and the Lord gave her, and it gives a very short summary of this story. But it's been recorded that it was not given from the Gospel of John. Rather, this story was attributed, or at least a form of it, to a gospel called the Gospel of the Hebrews, which does not exist today. It's a gospel narrative uh, that we only have excerpts of by quotation. Now, that's important to note because Papias was in Asia Minor. Uh, he was known as a follower of John, a possible disciple of John, and a friend of Polycarp. And why is a man in Asia Minor uh, giving credit to a story to a text down in Egypt that was often used by the Egyptian, the, the Jewish Christians in Egypt, this gospel of the Hebrews, why was he giving credit to this story in the end of the first century, not to John, who he knew, heard, and followed, was possibly even saved and discipled under? Why was he giving credit to this story all the way down in Egypt, not John? And why didn't Eusebius correct him when he cited that? Eusebius was not limited in his ability to quote Papias and come over and say, he's wrong here. He did it with his eschatology. Why didn't he say, also found in our Gospel of John? Eusebius just left the quote there. Also in the external evidence, we see the manuscripts that do not have it. There are potentially 14 majuscule manuscripts that do it. Close to 14 is what I've counted. Majuscule are important. Uh, the unsealed texts are typically given on the side that they are uppercase, no spaces, which is the older version of writing, if you would, in a simplistic way. Uh, so they're usually the older manuscripts. So we have 14 of those majuscule manuscripts that do contain the story. The question is, is how many do not contain it in the majuscule? Well, we have just under 300 uh, that do not. So you're talking about 14 out of 300. Five of the most important manuscripts do not contain it as well. Aleph B, Alexandrinus, P66, and P75. Now that's important to note. Aleph, uh, in the first eight chapters of John, though it is an Alexandrian text, the first eight chapters are actually not Alexandrian. They're Western readings. So they're an early witness of a Western reading in the first eight chapters of John, and it does not contain it. Um, we see Vaticanus B uh, does not contain it, a very important manuscript, one of the earliest complete manuscripts of the New Testament and witnesses of it. It does not contain it as well. It represents a more Alexandrian read. Then you have Alexandrinus, which is a very unique text, very important for the Byzantine readings of the Gospels, because the epistles were Alexandrian in the reading, and the Gospels are actually Byzantine. It is the earliest witness of the Byzantine manuscripts, and it is not found in that manuscript as well in the section that would have been in. And there's actually chapter content 
laid out in a more ancient way in that document, and it is not in the listed 18 chapter references given in the manuscript, but it is the earliest witness of the Byzantine. P66 and P75 are two of the most important manuscripts of John. They are dated in the late 2nd century, early papyri, witnessing John's accounts. Neither one of those two have this story in it. Now, that's important because P75, if you date John, however you date it, whether it's 60 AD or 90 AD, this manuscript is within 100 years, a lifespan of a papyri manuscript of the original autograph. And it does not contain this in its manuscript. And it is a clean streamed line that seems to be connected just 150 years later to Vaticanus. So there's this clean transmission coming from within 100 years of the Apostle John. A lifespan. Papyri lasted anywhere from 100 to 125, 150 years, depending on the condition, depending on the usage and the weather. Uh, in the lifespan of a document... Uh, it is within that 100-year range, and it did not contain it, and it continued a clean stream somewhere in that stream, a cousin manuscript of some sort to Vaticanus, similar in reading. It is not in five of the most important manuscripts that represent an early Western, an early Byzantine, an early papyri, and an early Alexandrian text. It is not shown in the earliest versions, the Coptic uh, the Sahidic side of the Coptic manuscripts do not contain the story. The Syriac does not contain the story. The earliest of our, the Armenian does not contain the story. The Gothic, Ethiopic, the earliest witnesses do not contain it. No patristic writer references it, very few, I should say, reference it, not anybody, but save a handful potentially and how they cited it until the 12th century. If this story was so elaborate the way that we believe that it is, why wasn't this the most popular written on story in history? Why were the patristic writers and the church fathers not utilizing the story over and over and over the way that we would? Now, there are manuscripts that do contain it. That'll be some of the discussion. Uh, the manuscripts that do contain it, the first that we see is a 5th century document known as Codex Bize or Codex D. This is a predominantly inaccurate manuscript. Uh, it is important, but it is inaccurate. It's kind of a weird, goes on its own tangent kind of manuscript, but yet a very important one at the same time. This is the first instance we see it in the Greek textual family, and it seems from that place in the West, it started arising in these Latin texts and became popular in that part, trickling into the Byzantine. We need to recognize that it'll be brought up by TR advocates as well as majority text advocates that Stephen, this story is in over 1,000, far more than 1,000 Greek texts. It's in over the majority of the manuscripts. But when we talk about the majority of these manuscripts, most of them date past the 8th century, 9th up to 14th century that contain it. And the ones that do contain it, we need to recognize the fact that they're not exactly consistent. Uh, for example, Family One represents almost 17 manuscripts that contain this story, but they placed the story at the end of John after John 21, 25. Uh, manuscript 115 puts it after John 18. Manuscript 225 has it at John 7:36. Now, a good explanation for this is a lot of uh, the lectionaries and how they work things around. There's a good reason, possibility as to why it was there. 
Family 13 is a very important Byzantine tradition, likely coming from an ancestor of the 7th century. They place this document at the end of the story in Luke 21, 38, before the triumphal entry of Jesus. And I think there's a very important placement there, and it needs to be considered. So we have manuscripts that don't place it in John, rather in Luke. Manuscript 1333 also places it at the end of Luke 2453. Now we see, well, you say, well, okay, that's just, just a handful. But out of the thousand, what we need to recognize is that there's numerous streamed readings that are coming together to make one story. Von Soden claimed that he discovered seven streamed readings, and he listed them with the Greek letter mu, mu one through seven. Dr. Maurice Robinson, a tremendous scholar and textual critic, came behind and looked over Von Soden's information, only to find that he condensed it to three readings, Mu 5, 6, and 7. And he found that the story being compiled had three different major readings coming in to compile the complete story. 31% of it he listed Mu 5, 27% he listed Mu 6, 29% he listed Mu 7. In fact, if you look at a Pierpont majority text, uh, Robinson majority text, you'll see M5, M6, M7. Why are those there? Letting you know that this reading came in from this Byzantine stream. This one came from this Byzantine stream. We have to have numerous streams to even complete this story. So that's the external evidence. Is there internal evidence? Well, I did a, a, long, a large amount of my research on the vocabulary and syntax that John used here. And what I found is that there were 12 terms in this passage that would have required John to begin a new vocabulary selection different from anything he wrote in the Gospel of John. And I even took it a step further, further assuming he was the writer first, second, third John and Revelation, and saw if that vocabulary coincided and was unique to John's typical vocab. And so we have 12 verses with 12 readings, wordings, and the forms that they're used that John did not use anywhere else in Revelation 1st through 3rd John or the rest of the Gospel of John. That is concerning. I'm not saying that a writer cannot use uh, other information at, for one time, but 12 words that are not used anywhere else in 12 verse section, that cannot be stated anywhere else that I can find in John's gospel. It also, and maybe we can get in this later, disrupts Jesus's proclamation of the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. I believe this story there actually dismisses half of the fulfillment Jesus was proclaiming to the Jews on their Feast of Tabernacles by actually pushing the second aspect of his fulfillment of this feast a day after the feast is over, and perhaps we can get into that later. But where did, so the question is, is where do these verses come from? Nothing just comes out of thin air. There's an origin to things. As I stated, Papias was familiar with this story, not giving credit to his friend John, but rather to a gospel writing down in Egypt called the Gospel of the Hebrews. Uh, and then we see a story of this at the end of the fourth century by a man named Didymus the Blind, who is down in Egypt. And he did not say that he found this in the Gospel of John. In fact, he gives this unique statement. He said this was found in Gospels, plural, as if it was in a numerous amount or two, at least, other accounts of this not mentioning John's gospel by name. Another very important statement about that is that later we see a, a Syriac in investigation was found of a document called Didascalia, claiming to be the 12 apostles in the Syriac language. And we see this story is found in this Didascalia. In fact, this storytelling in Didascalia 
is actually closer to what is in the Gospel of John today, more so than Didymus the Blind. And again, it doesn't mention adultery. It just says the woman who sinned. I make a resolution in my article that this story has history all over it, that it is found early on into the first century with Papias and perhaps given later in tradition in Egypt from this Gospel of Hebrews to Didymus, which is probably one of the ones he referenced, and then Didascalia down in Syria. This was a story, but they're not the same story completely in detail. They're similar, enough to be related, but there are major differences in details. Even the manuscripts have major differences in details. So what we need to ask ourselves is, is where did it perhaps come from? I made an argument, not saying it's completely true, that this story perhaps originated from a work of Luke, perhaps in what's known by scholars as the L source, special material. A student of Dr. Dan Wallace named Kyle Hughes did a thesis not long ago showing the different Lucanisms, since John's syntax seemed different here, but noticed a lot of Lucanisms in the story. Uh, Kyle Hughes came up with seven Lucanisms. I went behind his thesis and I read it and studied it, and I found three additional Lucanisms. And I believe the reason, and I don't believe the lectionary can answer this, as to why the story was placed in relation to Luke 21, verse 38, in the Family 13 manuscripts. I don't think it's necessary the lectionaries as much as the wording. If you read the beginning of Luke 21, 37 through 38, you will find that the introduction to that chapter in chapter uh, 22 is identical almost to the introduction in John 7, 53. There's a reason it was placed there, and I do not believe the lectionaries are the answer there. There's a lot of Lucanism, so it's possible that there was a source of study that Luke had, and I, hear me carefully, possible that Luke had this story a part of his special material, and it made it into the tradition of other documents like the Gospel of the Hebrews, where the stories were heard by these in Syria and in Minor and also in Egypt. I do not believe it should be accepted as scripture. I do believe John did not write it. I do believe that it should be accepted as history. And I do believe the story actually happened in history. Awesome. Thank you so much for that affirmative for the opening of the debate, Stephen. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Jeff. Great. Thank you, Josh, for inviting me to be part of this podcast tonight. And uh, thank you to my counterpart, uh, Stephen Boyce, for the opportunity to discuss this important topic. Um, the question tonight regards the authenticity of a beloved passage in the Word of God, the Pericope Adulteri, John 7:53 through 8:11. My counterpart has what I see as the unenviable task of attempting to argue in favor of the rejection of this passage. He says that it's not authentic, it's spurious, it's uninspired, and he contends that it should be removed from our Bibles and relegated to the footnotes at best. This is not only a challenge to the Pericope Adulteri, it's a challenge to the inspiration, the self-authentication of Scripture, and the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. It is an attack as well on the canon of Scripture, since canon has not only to do with the books of the Bible, but also with the sacred content, the text of those books. In text criticism, we don't just dispute about a, a word or a phrase, a half verse or a verse at times. Sometimes there are longer passages, the longer ending of Mark and the Pericope Adulteri. Think about the Pericope Adulteri. It encompasses 12 verses 
according to our modern versification system. Consider that the book of 2 John consists of but one verse more, being 13 verses in length. And so to uh, suggest that we reject the pericope adulteri is like suggesting that we get rid of the book of 2 John from the canon of the New Testament. As we uh, turn to look at some of the evidence tonight, I want to look at the external evidence. I want to look at the internal evidence. I want to look at the history of the reception of the pericope adulteri, since those are the three areas uh, on which uh, the topic was based. So let's begin with the external evidence. I want to look at three types of evidence, the Greek manuscripts, the early versions or translations, and the patristic or church fathers evidence. So first of all, the Greek manuscripts. The pericope adulteri appears in many ancient unseals, including uh, Codex D, uh, Codex Beza from the 5th century, as well as codices E, F, G, H, K, M, U, Gamma, Pi, 28, 700, 892, and more. It is also found in over a thousand later minuscule manuscripts, an indication of the fact that it was acknowledged as the majority or the consensus reading of early Christianity. According to Dr. Maurice Robinson, probably the most knowledgeable scholar in the world today on the manuscripts of John, in data he reported in 2014, the pericope adulteri appears in 1,476 extant Greek manuscripts and is omitted in only 267. By the way, Dr. Robinson affirms the authenticity of the pericope adulteri. According to Dr. Wilbur Pickering, the pericope adulteri is omitted in only 15% of all extant Greek manuscripts. Secondly, the versions, the pericope adulteri does appear in many uh, ancient versions, including the Old Latin and the Coptic. Most notably for Western Christianity, it was included in the Latin Vulgate produced by Jerome in the late fourth century. Third, patristic evidence. Uh, oddly enough, uh, my counterpart in his online essay on the Pericope Adulteri says, quote, very few patristic writers referenced the Pericope Adulteri until the 12th century. He repeated that statement tonight. That is simply an inaccurate statement that it's easily falsified if you check the early Christian writers. Of the Eastern writers, Knust and Wasserman have recently traced possible allusions to the Pericope Adulteri in the writings of Origen, who lived from 184 to 253. The Pericope Adulteri is also cited, as Stephen acknowledged, by the originist Didymus of Alexander, or Didymus the Blind, who lived from 313 to 398. It is among the Western Church Fathers, however, where references to the Pericope Adulteri are more abundant. I was recently reading the popular patristic series volume on the select letters of St. Cyprian of Carthage, who lived from 200 to 258, where in letter 13, there is an allusion to John 8:11. The editor of this work, Alan Brent of Cambridge University, adds this footnote. Note that Cyprian's manuscript clearly contained the passage in John regarding the woman taken in adultery. The Pericope Adulteri was explicitly discussed by Ambrose of Milan, who lived from 340 to 397, and most notably in the great Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 430. We'll return to, to Augustine a little bit later. 
As we've already mentioned, he was uh, the Principe Adultri was also mentioned by Jerome and included in the Vulgate. So it's simply untrue to say that the church fathers did not know of and address the Pericope Adulteri. Before we move on, I want to make two other quick points. First of all, we clearly acknowledge that the Pericope Adulteri was disputed in some early Christian circles at some point. And this led either to its being removed or simply not being copied. We cannot be sure when or why this happened, though there are some reasonable suggestions I hope that we'll talk about later. <clears throat> we can be uh, just as sure, however, that the impulse to reject or suppress the pericope adulteri was organically overcome and a consensus was reached that the pericope adulteri is inspired and canonical by the church and that uh, maintained, it maintained that position until the Enlightenment and the rise of modern historical criticism, which my counterpart has been influenced by. Uh, secondly, we can be sure that the Pericope Adulteri was not a floating tradition, as Stephen Boyce has suggested. This idea was popularized by Bruce Metzger. It's been embraced by Mr. Boyce and by others. But it simply isn't true. In 2014, at a conference at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Chris, Chris Keith of St. Mary's College in London, the author of the book Pericope Adultery, the Gospel of John and the Literacy of Jesus, said that we can be sure of three things, regardless of our opinion on the authenticity of John. First, he says, Christians were reading the Pericope Adultery by at least the fourth century at the traditional position where it is now, at John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Second, he says, there were copies of John that were circulated without the Pericope Adulteri. And then thirdly, he said, the only location attested for the Pericope Adulteri is at its traditional location until the ninth century. These handful of examples that uh, he gave drawing on Metzger are all very late. None of them are early. The Pericope Adulteri is not a floating tradition, and that should be put to rest. Let's move on to some internal evidence. Not only does the external evidence prove the antiquity and originality of the Pericope Adulteri, but the internal evidence also proves its authenticity. The other day, I just sat down and read through the passage again, and I jotted down a, a half dozen examples of Johannine words and phrasings in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Let me see if I can quickly go through some of these. First of all, in uh, verses 2 and 8 of chapter 8, the adverb palen, meaning again, appears. This adverb appears in 44 verses in 15 chapters of John. In context, it also appears in John 8.12 and John 8.21. The word occurs in John more than any other New Testament book. It is also found in the book of 1 John and in Revelation. It appears three times in Luke, at Luke 6.43, Luke 20, Luke 23.20. Second example, in chapter 8, verse 2, the phrase is used, into the temple, Ice ta hieron, and also he taught, and he taught them. Kai, kathisos, he sat down, adadiskain, autus. 
Well, look at John 7, 14, which uses the exact same prepositional phrase, eis ta heron, into the temple, the conjunction chi, and the exact same verb, adedasken. You can also look at John 7, 35, where it says chi dedasken tus helenos, and uh, or, and to teach the, the the Greeks. So there's Johannine language in John 7, 14, John 7, 35, and there's Johannine language in John 8, 2. Third example, John 8, 4, Jesus is called master, didaskale. It's in the vocative. The, the noun means master or teacher. This noun appears seven other times in John, in John 1, 38, John 3, 2, John 3, John 8, 4, John 11, 28, John 13, 13, John 13, 14, and John 20, 16. Fourth example, in John 8, verses 6 and 8, there's a prepositional phrase, ice tain gain, on the ground. The same phrase appears in John 3, 2, John 12, 4, John 21, 9, John 21, 11. That, that prepositional phrase, ice tain gain, occurs zero times in Matthew, one time in Mark at Mark 4, 8, and two times in Luke, Luke 8, 8, and Luke 24, 5. But it's a predominantly Johannine usage. By far, the most common usage in the synoptic gospels, it, gospels is epitaskes, or epitangain. So it's a definite distinctive Johannine usage. Fifth of this half dozen examples, in John 8, 9, there's the phrase being convicted, the conscience being convicted. And he uses the verb elenko, meaning to condemn or convict. This verb appears three other times in John, at John 3.20, John 8.46, John 16.8. It occurs zero times in Matthew, once in Mark 18.15, and once in Luke 3.19. Sixth example, in uh, John 8, verses 9 and 10, the adulteress is referred to with the nominative feminine, uh, feminine singular. She's called the woman, he gene. The noun with the definite article is used frequently in John and especially in the narrative of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, another interaction of Jesus with a woman of questionable reputation. Seven times in John 4, she is referred to as the woman, he gene. John 4.9, John 4.11, uh, 4.15, 4.17, 4.19, 4.25, What is more, the Samaritan woman in John 4 returns, re, uh, refers to Jesus as Lord, Kyrie, the vocative, three times in John 4.11, John 4.15, John 4.19, just as the adulteress in John 8.11 also calls Jesus Lord using the vocative, Kyrie. So the language, the vocabulary of John 7:53 through 8:11 is thoroughly Johannine. Secondly, the pericope adultery fits with the narrative themes of John 7 and John 8. I don't have time to cover all of this, but if you look at John 7 and you look at John 8, you look at the pericope adultery and you look at the material that comes after it, there's mentions of Jesus teaching in the temple, of the Mo of Moses and the law. The Pharisees are mentioned in all three segments, in chapter 7, in the Pericope Adulteri, and in the passages following after the Pericope Adulteri. So it fits perfectly with the narrative framework uh, of uh, John 7 and John 8. 
With regard to historical evidence, we can uh, easily posit a historical background for controversy surrounding the Pericope Adulteri. For one thing, there were many efforts to alter the text of Scripture early on. Irenaeus charged Marcion with mutilating the Gospel of Luke and furnishing men with not the Gospel but only a fragment of it. Tertullian described the arch-heretic Marcion as the Pontic Mouse who gnawed the Gospel to pieces. Augustine gives a very interesting direct explanation for why the Pericope Adulteri had been omitted by some. Writing about the year 400, he said, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. So Augustine knew of efforts to remove the Pericope Adulteri, and he basically gave a moral ethical reason for why some sort of super legalistic people had attempted to remove it. More than moral scruples, it seems that the Pericope Adulteri might have been controversial in disputes over forgiveness of the lapsed during the Novation controversy that came after the Decian persecution. In Cyprian's treatise on the fallen, De Lapsus, he addressed a rigorous position when he wrote, quote, a deep wound should not be spared a long time and careful treatment, penitence should not be less than the sin itself. Do you think that you can suddenly gain the forgiveness of God whom you have denied with faithless words? The translator, Alan Brent, in a note to his translation of Cyprian, says that he uses the Latin noun adultera, to refer to one who disassociates himself from the church to join a false religion. We cannot say with certainty how or why the adultery might have been suppressed, but we can say that eventually a consensus emerged that it was scripture and that consensus, consensus held both the West and the East, and it persisted until the Enlightenment. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys for your introductions. I think we're off to a strong start and we've got enough material to uh, follow up with a good rebuttal and cross-examination. So with that said, we're going to go to the rebuttal and Stephen Boyce, you are up with the affirmative for five minutes. Give me just a second of clock five instead of 15 and we should be good to go whenever you're ready. Yeah, uh, no doubt there's Johannan terms in here. I was focusing on the fact that there's non-Johannan terms in here in a large amount in a small section. For example, um, he never talks about the Mount of Olives in his writings, but yet we find that at the very beginning. He uses the term orthru for early in the morning, which is not the same word he used in John chapter 20 when he came early morning uh, at the resurrected tomb. Uh, words like perizantes for testing are not used. Categorain, accuse. Uh, he uses words like epimenon for continued, anakupsas for raised himself up. Those terms are not used in John at all. Most of them aren't used by any New Testament writer at all. Uh, some of them are used by Luke. It's not a matter of whether there's Johannan terms in there. Sure, of course there is. Um, and that makes perfect sense. But at the same time, the question is, why are there non-Johannan terms that he, in just one story, just started changing some vocabulary locations? He mentions the grammates, the scribes, 
Nowhere in John's gospel does he talk about this group of people, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. So that, that needs to be understood. I'm not saying that there's not Johannine terms there. That's why we can't make a final assertion on syntax alone. It's just the fact that we should be aware that there's weird things happening in this text that are not there. Be very careful with the words. When I'm talking about the 12th century, I wanted to be very clear. I'm not saying nobody ever mentioned it. No patristic writer, church father ever referenced it. Certainly there was references, but they were in a small number. There were not many commentaries on the text itself in relation to the story. Now, a lot of the citations that Dr. Riddle just mentioned, many of those never affirm this story to John. That's what we need to make sure we're understanding. They talked about a story. And how did they quote the story? And what we find is, is when they're quoting the story, it is not identical to each other. And it is not identical to many of the manuscripts that we have today. That is why this is alarming. When they're quoting other passages, yes, there's differences from other passages in the West and in the East and, and in the North and places like that. Yeah, we see differences. We're not talking about some different. We're talking about major differences. We're talking about verses completely not there. As I stated earlier, yes, we see that there's well over a thousand, over 1400 manuscripts of this, but do they read the same in, 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 in those places? There's always sexual variances, but we're not talking about a few words. We're talking about many different streamed readings just in the Byzantine tradition alone that are coming in. Dr. had mentioned the fact that there were many, quote, many ancient uncials. I don't consider 14 out of 300 or so to be many. That's a minor amount. It's not in many of the earliest. And that needs to be understood. And he said, well, it's only in 15%. But let's talk about that percent. That percent is our earliest witnesses. It is our earliest citation. And again, when we see it quoted from the patristic or written by patristic writers or quoted from church fathers, what we find is Papias is a follower of John. He knew John. The first witness of this story is credited to the gospel of the Hebrews, not the gospel of John. That's something that has to be dealt with even in the ecclesiastical group. Those that hold ecclesiastical text position have to deal with an early father in the first century who knew John, who did not give credit to this story to John the Apostle. Uh, Dr. Riddle mentioned it's in the old Latin and Coptic. The Latin that it followed seems to be heavy from the West. And he even made the statement that the usage of the church fathers mostly came from the West. That's because this story seemed to have arisen and originated from the West. Dr. Wasserman in his book actually makes reference to that. And I agree with Dr. Wasserman, uh, Wasserman and Jennifer on that assertion. But remember, he said that the old Latin and Coptic had it. The earliest Coptic of the Sahidic did not have this story. The earliest uh, translations of the Ethiopic did not have this story. This did not become a, a question till later. And he even mentioned the fact that it was brought up uh, early on. There was this discussion. And my question is, is where is it? Yeah, there's allusions from Origen, but Origen never said John's gospel. Origen was where? He was in Egypt. Where did this story circulate early on from Didymus? Didymus probably got it from Origen. He got it, they got it from each other in that region because they were obviously reading the gospel. The Hebrews, it was available to them. Even Eusebius mentioned the fact that this was a popular gospel read in the location of Egypt. I do not think this can be argued necessarily just from syntax, and it can't just be argued just from some of these citations, but we do need to talk about them. We think they're important. We need to keep them in their context. What were they citing? How did they cite it? And where did they give credit to the citation? The readings are not identical. The location is not always given to John. That is important to note. 
All right, thanks for that, Stephen. And Dr. Riddle, I'm going to turn it over to you for your five-minute rebuttal. Okay, with regard to uh, the passage being omitted in some early manuscripts, I've already said we agree historically, yes, there was controversy over this passage, but that controversy was overcome and there was a consensus that was uh, maintained. There were a number of things, there's a number of things that uh, Stephen Boyce has written in the article and a lot of the material that he shared tonight, uh, if you want to go to his blog and look at the article titled, Did John Write the Story of the Woman Caught in Adultery? There are a number of factual errors in that document that I wanted to uh, challenge uh, Stephen uh, regarding. One of them has to do with the fact that he said in his presentation that Codex Alexandrinus is an example of an early unsealed manuscript that omits the Pericope Adulteri. I don't know if you have a copy of the NA-28, Stephen, but if you look on page 799, the listing of the uh, unsealed manuscripts, when it lists uh, Codex A. Alexandrinus, it also lists the places where there are gaps in that manuscript. And you notice that there's a gap between John 6.50 and John 8.52. So Codex Alexandrinus is a witness uh, to the absence of the Pericope Adulteri. It simply has a gap in the text and isn't a witness for it or against it. And so I think you probably ought to remove that from uh, your paper. You also make much, and you say in the paper that you accept a theory that was first floated by Bart Ehrman, um, that the Pericope Adulteri came about through the joining together of uh, the, the account that's mentioned uh, in Eusebius' church history by Papias, uh, and it's said to be in the Gospel of Hebrews and the Didascalia, and uh, also from Didymus. But one issue I don't think you uh, can certainly prove, first, first of all, there's no way that you can prove that. So it's a conjecture. And also, who's to say that the account that Papias gives is related to the woman taken in adultery? It could well be an account of the woman, the sinful woman who anointed Christ in Luke 7. So that theory is flimsy. It's a complete speculation, a complete conjecture. And it, there's really no basis or evidence for it. A much more reasonable explanation is that the Pericope Adulteri was in the original text of John. And uh, there were, it perhaps was there and also in some oral tradition, but it was there in John. And various persons borrowed it from John rather than John borrowing it from other persons. So Didymus took it from John. The didascalia took it from John rather than vice versa. Let me, let me switch gears for the time that's left, and I want to go and look at uh, some of the um, internal arguments that Stephen has alluded to today and the ones that are in his article. He cites nine examples of supposedly non-Johannine uh, words or phrases in uh, the Pericope Adultery. He has already mentioned one of those in verse one, the reference to the Mount of Olives. And indeed it is a hopox within the Gospel of John. But in truth, Mount of Olives 
only appears a couple of times in the other Gospels. In Matthew, it only appears three times. In Mark, three times. In Luke, two times. Since John doesn't include a lot of the parallel material in the Synoptic Gospels, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that Mount of Olives doesn't appear more often. So, for example, in Mark and Matthew, there's the Olivet Discourse. John doesn't record that. So it's not surprising that he doesn't make reference to the Mount of Olives. And it's mentioned in Luke and uh, as well, I think it's uh, perhaps also in, no, it's in, <clears throat> it's in Matthew and Mark also, where there's a reference to after the, the Last Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, given that John doesn't have a record of the Last Supper, it's not surprising that the phrase Mount of Olives doesn't appear in that text. The other thing to take into consideration is, if we believe that the author of the Gospel of John was John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, don't we think that John the Apostle would know what the Mount of Olives is as a place? Wouldn't he know that Jesus often went there. So if John the Apostle is the author of, of John 7, 53 through 11, it's not surprising that he knows that term. And so that would be one example of an argument that Stephen makes that just doesn't make sense, quite frankly. Awesome. Okay. Hey, all right. Thanks, guys, for the rebuttals. And now we are going to transition into our cross-examination uh, this is where the negative is going to go first, so Dr. Riddle, you will be first to question Dr. Boyce. I'm going to reset the clock here. Let me, let me just start with uh, my question that I asked you about Codex Alexandrinus. Were you aware of the fact that there's a gap there, and it's neither a witness for or against the Pericopea adulteri? Yes, I've uh, examined Codex Alexandrinus very closely, actually, in much of my work, and there is a massive gap there, and it has been estimated by the words of usage and so forth that it would not fit there. Also, one of the other reasons that it is rejected, because Alexandrinus has a unique setup of chapter content that is given uh, for its reader, and it's not listed as a marking of the chapter content in the manuscript. Dr. Wallace has affirmed the same thing, that this story would not have fit uh, in that narrative uh, of the gap that is there. Yes, that section is missing. I've examined the manuscript very closely, but it would not fit. We can show how uh, it wouldn't have fit, and also it wasn't listed in the chapter, and I'm using that word loosely, chapter contents that were given. There were 18 chapters in the uh, uh, book of John there in that manuscript. But, but, given, but given that there is that big gap there, you cannot, in fact, say definitively that Codex Alexandrinus is a witness to the omission of the Pericopea adulteri. That's correct, correct, right? Well, since I don't use absolute certain terms, I would say there's a good possibility. So back to the evidence, would it fit? Can we prove it fit? Can we do the science and put words there like they did on the codex proven, like for example, and I don't want to get into this, the long ending of Mark, there was a theory that, oh, there was room for it. Well, that theory has been disproven based on size and font and usage, and it would actually have overlapped. We can do things like that to come up with a good reason. Would I stand uh, on a chopping block for it? No. Okay. What about my challenge to the uh, whether or not Papias's reference to the sinful woman before Jesus in the Gospel of the Hebrews 
whether or not that is is a reference, in fact, to the woman taken in adultery, there's no way really to prove that that was what Papias was making reference to, correct? Well, it seemed like everybody that followed Papias on that later would assume that it is exactly what he was talking about. And I haven't heard any other theory, and maybe you have. I'm not saying they're not out there. But well, who, else is, who, else is, who else is, you said everybody who followed after him, who else has definitively shown that that is a reference to the pericope adulteri or to the woman taken in adultery? And it doesn't explicitly say I'm that. I'm not talking about in history. I'm talking about scholars who study the quote from Eusebius, because Eusebius was actually not even talking about the Gospel of John there. He was in a section on the apostles, and he added some additional things that he knew of these writings. To me, the story fits the description, and the fact that it was quoted supposedly from the Gospel of the Hebrews, and then you see guys like Didymus the Blind who would have had access to that gospel document in Egypt, because that's where it was popular, also quoting, again, we're talking about evidence. And, and but Did, but Didymus, Didymus doesn't say anything about the gospel of Hebrews in his commentary on Ecclesiastes when he makes reference to the, the, to the woman who was taken before Jesus, right? Exactly. And he, he never mentioned the gospel of John. He mentioned gospels. Plural. But he doesn't mention the gospel of Hebrews either. That's so So it's a complete conjecture and there's it's it's something you can't move. Uh, so uh, l let me ask you this: what, what's your response to Chris Keith's statement that uh, the one there's one of three things we can be sure of is that the pericope adulteri was uh, up through the ninth century always found at the traditional location when it was placed within a manuscript of John. It was always at 753 through 811. That's its place. And those examples, the few examples, I think five or six of them that you cited uh, are all post ninth century. Which examples are you referring to that are post ninth century? Every single one of them. There's a single one that's early. I'm, I don't have a problem with it being located in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. I guess I'm questioning why why that's an issue. I don't have a problem with it being located there. Well, you've built a lot of scenarios. I mean, you've suggested that because you've suggested that, that it was produced by Luke and it was a part of the Elson in your article, you've gone even further and said that it was it was proud of proto-Luke. You you make a lot about the fact that uh, it was included in uh, one tradition in Luke's gospel, and, and you say that's very very significant. But all of that was a thousand years after uh, the Gospel of John was written, and thousands of years after. I mean, the Pericope Adulteri is, is no one is questioning the antiquity of the account. I mean, we've we've cited people like Cyprian of Carthage who. Are, are, are making reference to it in 200. So, um, it, and Chris Keith, who's an expert in the field says, it's only traditionally known prior to the ninth century at John 7:53 through 8:11. The idea of it being a floating tradition is, uh, is simply a fallacy. Well, uh, you're referring to the Family 13 manuscripts that place it after Luke chapter 21. There's a list of manuscripts that seem to go back to a mother manuscript in the 7th century. But the point of the matter was, is I was making that argument, not so much from a actual standpoint, but from a word standpoint, going behind Kyle Hughes's thesis, saying, hey, here's a 
potential there. And then when you line up the syntax, there's syntactical uh, connections. But when we're looking at Ascalia, Assyrian writing, or we're looking at Didymus's quote or something like that, I don't see a problem with those being early additions. My question is with a lot of these church fathers, or not my question, my statement is a lot of these church fathers that you keep referencing never say John. Let's go back and talk about some of the, um, we talked about the Mount of Olives. Let's go back and talk about a few more of the internal uh, vocabulary arguments that you made. You, you, you take on the mention of scribes in verse 3. And you note that that's a hapax within the Gospel of John. But let's say if we look at Luke chapter 21, verse 2, the reference there to the sons of Zebedee, mm-hmm. that's a very synoptic gospel type of expression. And it only appears here in John. Does that mean that Luke 21, 2 is also uh an, an inauthentic part of John's gospel because it uses it also uses a synoptic term one time? Well, I said very clearly, and if you read my article, you'll know that I said that just because a writer uses a word time, one time doesn't mean anything. Comparing a one-time usage of a word just here in this one place, only one time of the gospel, Paul does it all the time in his epistles. He uses terms that are not found. Like in Titus, he uses terms not found anywhere else. You're comparing the fact that there's 12 potential non-Johan words to a section in Luke that's got one. Well, let's, let's, good. Let's, let's, say, let's look at this thing as to whether or not non-Johannine words. One of your examples in five was the, the expression su un, you then or therefore you. And you said that this was, uh, this was strange, this is not Johanna. But what do you make of the fact that the particle un appears in 196 verses in every single chapter of the Gospel of John, and that it appears more frequently in John than any other Gospel, whereas it appears only six times in Mark and only 33 times in Luke. How could you possibly use that particle as an example of something being not Johannine? But read it very carefully, Dr. Riddle. I stated in the beginning of this that sense that it is the forms that they are used. This is a pronoun conjunction. This is not just one word. Of course, he used un. All, in fact, all the writers of the New Testament Gospels did. This was a pronoun conjunction usage together. That is phrase that is unique. Let's, let's go on another example. In verse 6, uh, the uh, participle, pyrozontes, from pyrozontes, tempting right. or testing. Right. And you pointed out that this is used in the synoptic gospel to refer like in the temptation and so forth. Right. But I think you made the statement that it's not used at all in John, but it is used in John 8, 6. Now it's Jesus talking and it, it's about talking about him testing, but certainly there's a place, another place in John where that verb is used. So it's not exactly right to say that that's a non- Johannine phrase when it's used in John 8, 6. Um, let's, let's go. Am, am I going to be able to answer that? Yeah, let's give him a chance to answer that. What's your response sure, on that? Again, I want you to read, and, and I challenge anybody to go back and, and read the words of the article, not just how they're being portrayed here. I stated very clearly in the forms that they are used. I'm not saying that John ever used origin words of this or a form of these words it's in the forms 
that they are used. I did not state these terms have never in any sort been used by John. And again, I also stated that this is not a major reason to accept or reject the, this well, gospel. Let's, let's look at the next, let's look at the next example. To this let's, look at the, let's look at the next example then in, in Luke 8, 6, the, the verb kategorine, to accuse. This, you, this is exactly what you wrote in your article. You said, quote, Luke uses this phrase five times in his writings, mm-hmm. but once again, John does not. So I would take from that, that that you believe that John does not use this verb, kategorine. Is that correct? If you read the article and the context in which it is written, it, it's clearly in the form. So for me to say, we're talking about the exact forms. I know that's uh, there's words that are being used that were used in different formations. He might have been using it in in the Eris passive. He might or whatever. I mean, that's fine. I understand that. So very you, okay. Even even on point, do, do you think it's fair to say because because an author uses a, a verb in a different tense or in a different person that that's evidence that they aren't fam- that, that it's not, using vocabulary that's different? Not in the sense that you're referring to it. I'm talking about unique readings in one section. We're not talking about the whole narrative. We're talking about one section. And it's also in conjunction with Luke's usage of it and that there's exact phrasing that Luke's using that is similar to the usage of this narrative. Of course, in fact, I mean, John also uses just gave five in John five forty five. He uses it in John eighteen twenty nine. So he's certainly familiar with the verb to accuse. Certainly, and so it's part of his vocabulary. So it does that doesn't really prove that 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 usage is non Johannine. Let's go on to another example in uh, chapter eight verse seven. Uh, you call attention to the verb uh, epimeno. Epimeno. And you give this as an example of non-Johannine vocabulary in the Pericope Adulteri. But, of course, epimeno is simply the, uh, the prefix epi and the verb meno. And yes. don't you agree that meno, to abide or to remain, is one of the most quintessential Johannine words and concepts? It appears in 17 of John's 21 chapters. Uh, it's in John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. And so don't you think if he knew meno, uh, the author would also know epimeno? Sure. So again, that would not be a good example of a non-Johannine uh, word. Wouldn't you agree? In the sense that he used it here, it's unique from the rest. He did not use the epimeno in the rest of his narrative. He did use epi in places, use meno in places, but not together. I'm not saying, and I stated this, and if anybody wants to read, I never claimed that these are the end-all, do-all forms. That answers the question. I'm drawing a reader's attention to there's usages that are not like on in these places. Yes, we can do that in other passages. Talking about a small section, not a major amount or a, a, a small amount in a major section. Let me, go small- on to, let, me, let me go on to something else related to the internal evidence. You state that the the number of um, 
vocabulary differences, non-Johannine supposed, non-Johannine uses in the Pericope Adulteri are, this is a quote, completely unheard of. And you say not just on, but in the entire New Testament. Did you go and compare any comparable passages in John, a 12-verse section, to see if that was actually true. Could if you went through any 12 verses in the Gospel of John, wouldn't you is it possible you would find perhaps a similar number of hops uses or rare usages of a term, a verb, noun, etc.? In the form that it was used, it's not done that way in other places. I, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself on the form that it was used. It wasn't used at times or at that time in verses anywhere else. All right, and that's time. Thank you for the first round of cross-examination, and Dr. Boyce will turn it over to you for your team cross-examination whenever you're ready. Dr. Riddle, you made the statement, many ancient uncials. Now, that needs to be corrected so everybody can hear it. We're talking about 14 at best out of 300. Do you consider 14 out of 300 to be many? Uh, to be honest with you, I did not check every single uh, witness for this, but I listed, I listed in my presentation a long list of, uh, of unseals. I'm not sure exactly how many unseals, but I did list the fact that, according to Maurice Robinson, there are over 1,400 Greek manuscript witnesses to the Pericope Adulteri. Okay. Uh, so 14 out of 300, you didn't count them. Uh, I IGNTP, it's 0507090110013017028030030036039041045 and 233. There are the count that I did, it's in the article if you want to do that. So in the next section, you said there's over 1,400. Uh, let's talk about 1,400, uh, most of which you would admit are later, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Following the same families of the same streams, copying from later scribes, mostly from the 10th, we'll just give the benefit of the doubt, 8th and up centuries, correct? Uh, well, I, I won't claim to know where all those came from, but the vast majority of extant Greek manuscripts include the Pericope Adulteri, which I think is a sign of a consensus that emerged uh, in Christianity that affirmed this passage as authentic and inspired and as part of the proper text of the Gospel of John. Okay, so with that, in these manuscripts, are you saying that all of them read the same way? And I'm not talking about minor variances. Are you saying that they're consistent with each other? Are, are, is what consistent with each other? Are the manuscripts tell the story with the same details and the same way? Are they consistent with one another? It depends on how you define consistency. I mean, given that you're, you're in the pre-printing era and all these things are handwritten and hand-copied, there are differences. And also given the fact that you, know, you, you talked about uh, Maurice Robinson uh, working with Von Soden's uh, material and, and tracing the differences, some of the textual differences in the transmission of the Pericope Adulteri. Given the challenges to the Pericope Adulteri, I don't think it would be surprising that there would be 
a number of variations. I mean, there are variations in passages that, that aren't even as disputed. So as long as there is a tradition of handwritten copies, there are going to be various types of transcriptional errors and differences. But I think that the, the point that Dr. Robinson is making is that uh, perhaps in not every case exactly the same form, that there's an there's overwhelming evidence that the pericope adulteri was uh, widely accepted uh, when there are 1,400 uh, included and what 267 that do not. I mean, clearly, the majority. That's why it's called the majority text. Uh, accepted the pericope adulteri as scripture. Well, I know as you, as a TR advocate, uh, Riddle, the majority isn't the basis of a reading because the majority isn't always the way that the TR goes. Am I correct? Majority doesn't equal acceptance, correct? Yeah, but in this conversation, we're, we could talk about the Texas Receptus, and, and uh, it is an eclectic text. It, it is a, it's, it's a providentially uh, eclectic text, I believe. But in, this would be one of those cases, and there are many, actually, I mean, in general, the, the majority texts and the Texas Receptus are largely in agreement with one another. There are definitely some differences, like the Coma Ioanneum or uh, Acts 837 and others, that uh, where there would be differences between the majority text and the, 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 the Texas Receptus. This would be one example of a passage that is in the majority text and also is in the received text. Would you admit that in these majority that we're speaking about, again, we have to account for the fact some of them are in different places of the manuscript or some are in another gospel. Um, with these manuscripts, Von Soden, as you brought up, had seven uh, streamed readings that Maurice Robinson, I believe it was in 1991, went back and condensed, in his opinion, to three and his percentages were 31, 29, and 27. So even though Dr. Robinson accepted this, he admitted the fact that you cannot fully construct the full story as it reads without these three readings. And if you look at the majority text of Pierpont and Robinson, he lists those streamed M Mu5, Mu6, Mu7 to give you which part of that story was brought in from which stream. He made sure to even include that. Because he was can you tell me can you can you tell me uh, and perhaps you have more information than I do on this can you give me the most significant difference between those three streams and their in their <coughs> transmission of the prickpad ultra some of them I mean like there's some manuscripts that actually have what Jesus wrote uh, some start in verse three they don't always have that end of the verse that goes into chapter eight, verse one. But, verse but that, that wouldn't be an example of one of these three strings. That would be those. Those are anomalies. But in those, he's talking, about, tendency. he's talking about three three groupings of manuscripts share common characteristics, and, and most and, most and, of those are actually minor variations. Isn't that right? Yeah, but there are streamed collective family readings that start in verse three or they leave out certain aspects or add certain aspects of details. That's why Dr. Robinson listed those three, because he agreed with seven of them, or three of the seven that Von Soden put in, did he not? He listed that in his writings in 1991. Well, I'm not disputing the fact that the differences in the various handwritten manuscripts, there were definitely, there are definitely transcriptional dif differences between them, and there were there would definitely be that would even be more so in a passage 
that was highly disputed. And I said we we would agree that there's there was conflict over uh, the prick pay adulteri as to whether it should be accepted. And so uh, I, there's not really an, I'm not really arguing that there there weren't transcriptional differences and handwritten manuscripts. Which um, one which one should we accept as right? So we recognize the variances, we recognize the streams. You say that this was a settled issue by the churches when actually even Grinch's in history who like Euthemius uh, stated that in most accurate manuscripts, the story is either not found or has been marked a part of the readings of the lectionaries. So there are fathers later, even in the Greek churches of, uh, and even other churches in the world where they were saying things like, well, we do recognize that this isn't in all the earliest manuscripts, which seems to be consistent with what we do have surviving antiquity, correct? Because the oldest ones don't have it, correct? Well, I mean, Codex D has it, and it's probably of equal antiquity with the earliest ones that omitted. I mean, there aren't that many, there aren't that many manuscripts that, that, that bear witness to omitting it either that are early, but the majority, whatever differences they may have among them, are witnesses to the acceptance of the pericope adulterate, and it's an overwhelming acceptance. And we could you know, the, the, the manuscripts that omit, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned three unseals and two papyri. And, and so is that the extent of the early evidence that you can marshal for the omission of the Pericope Adulteri? Of those, P25 and Vaticanus are very similar to one another and probably have a, a common um, source. So that's really kind of maybe only one uh, stream. Um, yeah, but as I showed you, even in Sinaiticus, Dr. Riddle, the first eight chapters of Sinaiticus are actually Western readings, and you brought up Codex D. I would like to believe, especially as a TR advocate, that you don't find Codex D a reliable manuscript. Uh, I, I'm not uh, for uh, taking any uh, ancient manuscript as a diplomatic text for reproduce the 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 definitive text no but it is a witness to it's an early witness to the use of the pericope adulteri it's also a witness to the fact in that same manuscript that jesus healed a man out of anger not out of mercy or care for him but well, that's just, that's why we have to use an eclectic method uh and that was done by men in the protestant era who uh, we're familiar with the manuscripts and 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 who I think were providentially uh, led to make good selections. But that doesn't really this, this doesn't so, really so let me, this doesn't really divert from whether or not that there are early witnesses to the pericope adulteri. You know, you mentioned Tommy Wasserman and Jennifer Canoost. I mean, they've made the argument that, you know, it's very, very early. They don't they can't trace it. They, they can't say when. And they've studied uh, extensively all of the information. I mean, and they also say they make the argument that, hey, it's it it, it had its predominance in the West, but uh, it, it, it transferred from in Greek from the West to the East in usage and poverty of usage. So. Who? 
and there's a lot of speculation about that. In fact, when it comes down to it, there's not enough empirical evidence for us to use a reconstruction method to attempt to reconstruct the text. So I'm not an advocate for studying the manuscripts and attempting to reconstruct them. However, I can look at the these as you know historical markers for whether or not the Pericope Adulteri was known and was used in early Christianity. And that's so, what so the uses that you're saying we should go off is what the Protestant relation produced, which the earliest of the manuscripts that were there were 12th century at best that Erasmus had, but we should ignore a manuscript like P70, P66, which are within 100 years of the original document itself that was found in a location where Mark actually was a bishop of. You're, so you're saying we should accept this reading because 12th century and better manuscripts were put together by Protestants, and that makes the argument settled. When we're talking about all these other manuscripts, early citations— but we know nothing. We know nothing about the pro. We know nothing about the provenance of P sixty six or P seventy five, and actually all the all the examples that you gave. Uh, again, we got we're going to move Alexandrina because it's got a gap there. But you're left with four. You're left with four manuscripts, all of which are basically from from the same general geographical area. So all you can prove on, all you can, can improve, you can prove empirically is that there were a handful of manuscripts all from the same general area that omitted the prick adultery. I already granted, yes, there were disputes about it. I gave you some possible reasons as to why um, disputes. Doctor. One explicit, uh, explanation given by Augustine, and I suggested other ones like the novation controversy, problems with disputes about between rigorous uh, over those who had lapsed, and perhaps there, there would have been some things about this passage that were found to be offensive by well, some people. Well, you so there say could have been why people wanted to omit this. All right, let's, uh, let's let Stephen um, keep going with this question. It's supposed, to be a que it's supposed to be a question and answer. Um, <clears throat> the aspect of that, you say there's a handful. When the unseals, which are the earliest, there's not just a handful. 267 is what you stated is the number. It's definitely under 300. It's not 267 unseals, though, right? They're majuscule text. There's, over, there's right at 300 that have this opportunity and only 14 of those unseals actually have the story. That's not a handful. These are more, and they're not just in the providence of Egypt. That's an inaccurate statement. These unseals are I all said the four that the four that you mentioned as the, the ones that you mentioned in your paper. And again, I'm excluding Alexandrinus, but I mentioned seals as well, but you only mentioned specifically five manuscripts uh, that you seem to be, that is, that, that, that is actually that is not that that is not true, Doctor Riddle. I actually mentioned that only fourteen out of the three hundred unseals had it. I did bring those five because they connected, and it's a rare connection for those five manuscripts to agree in that way. And the reason I brought them up is because they're the earliest witnesses, the oldest Alexandrian, the oldest Western reading in Sinaiticus, and an older Byzantine reading. That's the only reason I focus on those five. But I mentioned all the other unseals as well. So all of that to say, 
in those citations of the church fathers that you keep claiming, how many of them stated it was actually in John? This will be the last question for this, this round. I don't know specifically how many mentioned it was exactly in, in uh, John, but uh, at least the, the editor and the translator of Green of Carthage uh, believed that um, when he edited that work, that the quote that the that the uh, that Cyprian knew uh, of the Pericope Adulteri in his copy of John, he said because he quoted it in a context where he was giving quotations from the Gospel of John. All right, guys, I was on mute there for a second, but yeah, hey, thanks, uh, thanks again for the cross examination. It was lively. It was good. You guys brought up a lot of good points. We've got a lot of good interaction online as well. Uh, there's been some questions coming in. Um, I would encourage you guys for if you do have a question um, after we do our closing statements here, wait till the closing statements are done to send your questions in. That way, I can kind of have them all together, so I don't have to scroll through everything uh, to get to them. Uh, but we will go to five-minute closing statements. The negative is going to go first, which will be Dr. Jeff Riddle, and then the affirmative is, is going to go second, followed up with Dr. Stephen Boyce. So thanks again, guys, and we're going to cut to closing statements. Just give me a second here to get five minutes on the clock. And whenever you're ready. So just to go back and survey the, the three... Uh, aspects of the question that we started with, with back to external evidence, the Pericope Adulteri is ancient and well attested. With respect to uh, internal evidence, I think I demonstrated uh, through the half dozen examples I gave, as well as the critique of uh, Stephen's examples of, of supposed non-Johannine material, that actually the Pericope Adulteri uh, is a good reflection of Johannine vocabulary, literary usage. Um, in the introduction to Hodge and Hodges and Farstad's The Greek New Testament According to the Majority Text, this is the conclusion they gave on the Pericope Adulteri's internal evidence. They said, in view of the features of the Johannine style that have been noted in the narratives, almost unique suitability to this context, the idea that this passage is not authentically Johannine must finally be dismissed. If it is not an original part of the fourth gospel, gospel, its writers would have to be viewed as a skilled Johannine imitator and its placement in this context as the shrewdest piece of interpolation in literary history. Accordingly, the consideration of the narrative's text that follows assumes its Johannine authenticity. And I would agree with them. This person would have to be uh, the most skilled imitator, Johannine imitator uh, in the world if this is not Johannine material. Um, we talked about an eventual historical consensus. A consensus was reached. John Calvin and his Terry on John acknowledged that the Pericope Adulteri was missing uh, from many Greek manuscripts, but he affirmed it as scripture, noting its apostolic spirit. Uh, Stephen uh, asks us, he said this in his opening statements, and it's very prominent in his article. He says, is it possible this is a true story, but it's not in Scripture? And I think that he gave us also in the opening a, a misreading of John uh, 21, 25. Uh, in John 21, 25, 
uh, the very last words in the gospel, uh, John says, and there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Uh, notice it's if they should be written. He's not saying that there can be uh, written stories about Jesus that are true, but are not included in the text of Scripture. In fact, that's plain from what he says in John 20, verse 31, of the words in John but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. I think if we say there are true stories about Jesus that aren't in Scripture, we open a Pandora's box. Who is to say that some non-canonical saying of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas or some miracle story in one of the infancy gospels might be claimed to be true. In the end, truth would just be left to the subjective judgment of the reader. Also, Stephen claims in his article that no major doctrine is excluded from Scripture if we remove this narrative. Such a claim is patently false. To reject the pericope adulteri is to reject the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture, is to reject the integrity of Scripture, is to reject the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, is to reject the doctrine of the canon of Scripture. It is a rejection of Christ's promise that till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle will in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And it's a rejection of Christ's teaching that Scripture cannot be broken. The pericope adulteri commends itself to be authentically Johannine. It has been received by Christians as part of the word of God. And it's really only a novel move of beginning in the ninth century of those who have attempted to remove it from its consensus place that was achieved uh, throughout the history of Christianity. And I think that's not something that we want to support. And so I believe that the Pericope Adulteri is Johannine, it is scripture, it is part of the canon. All right. Thank you for that, Dr. Jeff Riddle. And for your uh, final five-minute closing statement, Dr. Stephen Boyce, I'm going to cut to you. And guys, I'm going to give you that number for the call-in. I've got people calling in now. Uh, so just hang with me, and I'll, I'll give you all the information for that. Thanks. So what we gathered from this is that we don't know where the story came from originally in the sense of Dr. Riddle cannot point to a manuscript tradition outside a later manuscript tradition. And, it, and honestly, none of those manuscripts really matter because the Reformers got it right, which were based on late 12th century manuscripts. So we ignore all the earliest witnesses. We accept later witnesses found in one stream, and in that stream, it can't even agree with itself. Dr. Riddle can't point to one single manuscript text family and say, this is the actual manuscript tradition that's in the TR preserved by God. There's so much train wreck going on in the manuscripts of these wordings. We don't know where to point it at. We have church fathers that talk about it, but none of them actually, uh, not all of them, most of them don't even reference John at all. And what we find is, is in Dr. Riddle here, is that we read things out of context. We read articles out of context. We represent things out of context. And what we have to learn 
from debates like this is to be careful how we represent somebody else's work, uh, not to just compartmentalize it and condense it to our own understanding, rather actually read the whole paragraph and the evidence is provided based off that, not just pick and choose things out of those things. Misrepresentation seems to be important here. The reformers got it right. So why does it matter what everybody else said? If Erasmus had it in his text, who cares what the earliest manuscript said? Who cares how many uncials have it or don't have it? None of that matters to a TR-only advocate. As long as it was in that reform text, that's all that matters. My last statement I'm going to make about this is it should be rejected on an intrinsic reliability on the sense that Jesus was delayed in his acceptance of the the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 37, it was the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast in chapter 7. The priest would go down into the pool of Siloam, grab the water, put it in this basin, and he would bring it to the, to the temple, dump it around the altar, and at that seven circle, they would chant, Hosanna, save us. Jesus, on this feast of tabernacles, standing in the temple, points to the water and says, if any man is thirsty, let him drink of me, and out of you will come rivers of living water. He was saying, I am the fulfillment of this feast. And it was the last day, the great day of the feast. And then we get to the end of the passage of scripture, and they're debating about Jesus being a prophet from Galilee. And they're saying, check the scriptures. No prophet comes out of Galilee. And then Jesus, if we remove the story of the adulterer, adulteress there, we find that there's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, where you come into the passage of scripture, and from Galilee, a light was seen out of darkness. And Jesus, in verse 12, instantly would have been saying, I am the light of the world. In that same feast, same very feast, not only was the tradition of the Pool of Siloam poured out on the altar, but the people would light their lanterns and represent the deliverance of God out of bondage in Egypt. And they were carrying those lanterns, and Jesus looks at those lanterns and fulfills the second aspect and says, I am the light of the world filled both aspects of their traditional feast and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if we place the story of the woman caught in adultery there, everybody went away at the end of verse 52, and in the introduction of verse 53 in chapter 1, they went to their own houses, he went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, he now represents this time frame. The problem with that is, is that would have instantly pushed this second aspect of the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles after the Feast of Tabernacles, not on the Feast of Tabernacles, because verse 37 told us it was the last day of the feast when the priest would do that. Then we go into this discussion of a blind man in chapter number nine after he makes this tremendous proclamation of being the light, the water, and the I am. And there's this man outside of the temple who's blind. And Jesus looks at that man who's coming out of the temple. And what does he say to that man? Go to the pool of water, the pool of Siloam, the very pool the men who were representative of the priesthood went down in the gold basins, carried that water into the temple, singing the Hallels of Psalm 113 and Psalm 118, chanting Hosanna, save us. Jesus not only depicted that he fulfilled the tabernacle feast in the sense of the water, that he was the water, that he was the light and the lanterns that they were celebrating, but he also did a miracle very essence that he was not only fulfilling it in his teaching and in his demonstration, but produced a miracle of a blind man in darkness, brought him to light, who washed in the water of Siloam. If we insert the story of the woman caught in adultery here, we've actually pushed the second half of the fulfilled feast a day after the it interrupts the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles that John was trying to paint for us 
It doesn't belong for a lot of reasons. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's not in with the manuscripts within 100 years of the original. Dr. Riddle has wrongly stated that uncials, 30 of them have it. It's in most uncials. It is not. It is lacking in most. Most uncials do not have it and the early witnesses. This story is definitely historically accurate because it's talked about, but not necessarily affirmed by John. There's too many problems to consider this inspiration. All right, guys. Hey, thanks again for being willing to do this debate. I think, uh, obviously, there's a massive amount of information that both of you guys have uh, thrown into um, your introductions, your rebuttals, your cross-examination, the conclusions. There's so much information in here, and uh, I really appreciate you guys for being willing to do this debate. I know it's it's a topic that not a, a lot of people are willing to do, and... and uh, have, have got the amount of information that, that you're able to unload in something like this in, what, an hour and a half or so. So um, thanks again, and for those of you who are tuning in still, this is going to be your chance to get your questions in. Uh, we do have two callers on the line right now, and uh, I'll cut to those. We've got 20 Let me put 20 minutes up on the screen. We're going to do our best to uh, fail the 20-minute time slot that these guys have uh, are willing to go with. So um, let me get to our first caller. And uh, we've got Dr. James Snap is on the line. So, James, whenever you're ready, you can go ahead with your question and just say uh, who it's directed towards, if you would. I have two questions, uh, both for Stephen Boyce. All right, whenever you're ready. Stephen, I've heard this uh, claim of uh, 14 out of 300 uncials multiple, multiple times. And uh, that looks like uh, it's a combination of a list of uncials of, of regarding John 753-811 plus uh, the number 300 that somebody got from a total number of uncials of the New Testament. The number 300 is completely irrelevant for the question at hand because oodles and oodles of those 300 don't contain... John 7 through 8. They don't even claim the book of John at all. The relevant number is about a tenth of that. Um, so one could say that out of the manuscripts that we have of John, only 12 uh, support the non-inclusion. Of those 12, uh, two of them have a blank space there, which means that somewhere a scribe left blank space, so it's like he wasn't in his exemplar, his master copy but he re recollected the presence of the passage somewhere else. Um, so, since the number 300 is really relevant, isn't the number 14 out of 30 a more realistic statistic so that a person could actually say about half of the uncials have it and about half of the uncials don't, and two of them have a blank space, and one of them is half uncial, half minuscule? Because okay. that, that statistic, 14 out of 300, seems totally and completely a statistical phantom. All right. I think, all right, we've got it. Hey, Stephen, how would you respond to that? Yeah, the statement that was listed in the articles, there's potentially 14 majuscule manuscripts that contain the PA listed in the IGNTP edition, and I listed those uh, 14 that I found. I have behind James Snap. I don't mind going behind James Snap and, and seeing how many actually do out of the amount of unsealed text. The question is how many don't, and that was the emphasis in the article. 
And I only heard... It's 12 then, right? I can't understand half of what he said anyway. It's kind of fuzzy, but I think I understood some of his question, but maybe I didn't. He said, is it more like 12? Would the number be more like 12 then? 12 that have it or 12 that don't? 12 that don't. I'd have to go back and count, James. But, I mean, the list that I got from the IGNTP edition was the 14 that do have it out of the 300 manuscripts of the Unschools that we have. Yes, but, Stephen, the thing to see is those 300, that statistic, has nothing to do with the question at hand. That's simply the total number of Unschools of the New Testament from anywhere in the New Testament. Those are like a scrap from Revelation, yep. a scrap from Jude, a scrap from Paul. Have nothing to do with the question that involves the text of John seven through eight. Do you understand this? I understand what you're saying, James. Uh, like I said, I will go behind and give you a count. I can message you if you'd like on the side. I'm giving you the number that do have it out of the unseals that exist. That was the point in the article. Yes, but many, so many, but, but that's a completely superfluous point. Is what I'm saying. Do you, do you understand this? Which is why it's completely which is why, Give him a second. Hey. James, let's give him a second to respond, and then and then we're we're gonna go to another caller. We we've we're about five minutes into our twenty minutes here. Uh, can, I, can I get to my second question? Let's do it real quick. Uh, repeatedly, I've heard this phrase: "They never say John." These guys never say John, but actually, in real life, they do say John. The old Latin capitula from the time of Cyprian, or slightly thereafter, those are chapters summaries of John and there's like 12 different kinds of them and they say, they mention the adulteress right there where it's supposed to be in John. Leo the Great John, Sejulius, John Rufinus, John, Augustine, John Ambrose, Pace, All right. I mean, All right. these guys say John, that, that claim is completely bogus. How can you how can you be taken seriously and say they don't say John, they clearly do. Alright, we think the cup all right. I think, again, Thanks, James. The, the comments are back to the comment of who said what. When we're talking about Didymus, he didn't say John. We're talking about Papias, he didn't say John. I And go back and listen. I never said none of them ever said John. A lot of the ones that were brought up didn't specifically say John by name. Yes, there's evidence of John. Augustine most certainly talked about John. He mentioned that they were ripping it out in places and locations in North Africa of that he was familiar with. I never said that they didn't say John. I'm saying a lot of them never said John, like Didymus the Blind, like Origen, like a lot of those guys that we assume they may have touched on it or said a similar story to it. They didn't particular nail it down to John. Context to what I said is very important. All right, um, we've got another call that has come in. If you could state your name and who your question is to, and whenever you're ready, go ahead. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Ethan McGonagall, Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, just more of a more of a question slash comment uh, for for Mr. Boyce. It actually kind of piggybacks off of uh, um, uh, the previous question, by Mr. Snap. But um, I, he actually kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but. I was just going to quote a paper um, that was written by, it was written in 2000 and, excuse me, uh, 2009, I believe, by Chris Keith, entitled The Initial Location of the Precafe Adultery in, in a Fourfold Tradition. And uh, in page 10, he makes reference to patristic evidence, and he does, he mentions in this paper on page 10, he says, um, before moving forward to begin, to, 
to why a scribe might have moved the PA from this section, it is necessary to corroborate the manuscript evidence with 4th and 5th century evidence from Ambrosia, Jerome, and Augustine. And he makes some comments. He says, in a letter dated between 385 and 387, Ambrosia claims that um, PA is located in the Gospel of John and also remarks that the story is, by this time, quite familiar in Christian communities. Um, he then goes on to say that um, Augustine twice includes the PA in the running commentary on the Gospel of John. Um, and then, All right. Uh, hey, can we get, on. let's get a question real quick, if you could. Yeah. So they, no, it's, the, the, the question is, given these early 4th, 5th century references from these three church fathers, um, Augustine and Brogier, um, you know, what would be, you know, what would be your comment if they, if, if they are confessing that they, that these are not, that these are in the Gospel of John specifically, in their proper locations, between verses 7, 33, and 8, 11, it's more just what would be your what comment on that? More well, Augustine didn't specifically say the exact spot they were ripping it from, but he did say they were taking it from John. Also, that doesn't explain the absence of them all through the West or into the East or in other places of Egypt. That only explains what happened in one particular location. Again, I have no problem acknowledging the fact that they— Listen, Augustine was in the 400s when he was talking about that. There were earlier witnesses that didn't have it before him. I'm not saying the tradition didn't bring it into John, even prior to Codex D. The question of the matter is, is which ones did have it, which ones did not have it. He's giving us that there were people actually tearing it out. That's fine. That doesn't explain how it was absent in all the other parts of the world as well. Hey, Dr. Riddle, would you like to respond to that? Um, I, I don't really have anything i don't think to i think to add to that i mean it, it's it's interesting to hear get the information and there's certainly some people uh you know who are listening who follow this this closely and um you know have i'm glad they're they're the information that i'm maybe not aware of that it, some of the church fathers ex are making explicit that they are quoting from john um so again i just think that that's consistent with uh, the idea that the Pericope Adulteri was known as it being in John's gospel, as opposed to a kind of a far-fetched theory that that Airman apparently has put forward, and that and Stephen ups that uh, the the Pericope Adulteri was made from a, a, com a combination of uh, something from the Gospel of the Hebrews, something from Didymus and something from the, the teaching of the apostles. A, a lot more reasonable explanation is that the Pericope Adultery was original to John and that there were references to it in various other uh, Christian writers. So that seems to, be, to me to be just a much simpler explanation for uh, references to the Pericope Adultery. Hey, and I wanted to throw this out there. I did miss a call uh, from a number with a 540 area code. If you uh, would like to call back, feel free to call back. Um, that, that, was, that was me. Oh, that was you. That okay. Was All right. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Perfect. Thanks again for the question. Thanks. All right. So um, let's see here. Uh, we, we've got another question. There was, let's see. Oh, we've got a call coming in. Give me just a second. Are you there? Oh, yes, yeah, Stephen here from Texas. How are you doing, Joshua? Good. How are you, Stephen? 
Good. I'm going to be slightly repetitive. I just want to point out how amazing the Augustine and Ambrose evidences are because they specifically point out that the manuscripts have been deleted consciously. I mean, you know, not transmitted. I don't think that has gotten proper emphasis, even though the last caller sort of hit on it in a mumbo jumbo. Okay, so who would you like to... Obviously, you're probably directing uh, that to Stephen. I'd, like I'd like to softball it to, to Jeff Riddle. I, I can't, you know, <laughs> I don't... Uh, by the way, I want you, you to make it clear that James's point, maybe you could step it in. It's 14 out of 26, or, or less or so, 25, that have the actual section, majuscules. That was his point, not 14 out of 300, because most of those 300 have nothing to do with it. Chapter and verse. He tried to get it across, but it should be gotten across 100% clear. So I have a hard ball for boys and a softball for Jeff. All right, let's go with Jeff first. You get the softball, and then Stephen will get your response, which I think okay. we've already kind of got. Well, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't feel like we gave. I, you know, I gave it uh, adequate emphasis, but you know I did give the quotation from Augustine, uh, giving his explanation for why he thought that uh, some were taking the, the the passage out of the Gospels. And I mentioned the fact that Ambrose makes reference to it. And uh, so, yeah, it's there. I, I One thing that, you know, I, I tried to tie it to, and, and this, this may be more speculative on my part, and it, it came to my mind really because of the series I mentioned earlier that I'm doing through Eusebius as I'm, as I'm reading through Eusebius, and I just finished that that section in chapter six and seven that talks so much about the Decian persecution and the Novation controversy, and then reading the the letters of Cyprian after that, where they're they're dealing with differences between rigorous who did not want to accept accept people who had compromised it during the Decian persecution uh, versus actually the confessors and the martyrs who were were issuing. Um, uh, you know, uh, documents and decrees that allowed the, the people who had lapsed to come back. It seems like a, a, a golden situation where there could have been conflict over a passage like the Pericope Adulteri, and there could have been rigorous who were offended by what they saw as a representation of, of Jesus in, in their views too quickly offering forgiveness to this woman. Um, so again, I, I, I hate to pull that out, out of the air, but uh, it, it just seems like that could be a, a, re a relevant possible context. I mean, one of the things is, is you know, we're talking about, we're talking about, oh, you know, isn't it great we've got these early manuscripts? We're talking about these manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and, and, um, and Beza even, you know, at the best, fourth, fifth century, you know, 300 years, 400 years after the time of Christ. One of the reasons I, I don't accept the reason eclecticism is there's not enough empirical evidence for reconstructing a text. And somebody like a Bart Ehrman will say, yeah, you know what the text, the, the initial text is, you know what the text of the fourth century is, but you don't know what happened between John's comp composition and those manuscripts, and uh, therefore, you know, I think the 
the, the view of text criticism that relies on providential preservation is a superior one, in my view. All right, Stephen, let's get a response from you. And we've got two more questions. I think these last two questions I think, wrap it up. I think it goes back to the fact that, yes, Augustine mentioned the fact that those things happened. That was in a specific place. Again, we have two manuscripts that are within 100 years of an existing copy of what an original autograph would have lasted for. Two of them, not one, two of them that have survived. They did not have it. That's not equal to all of these other things that we're talking about, like some 10th and 12th century manuscript. Again, when we're looking at the, the, the manuscript origins, we want to get as close to the original as possible. What they were working with in the Reformation was 12th century manuscripts at best when Erasmus began his work. Uh, so, and, and again, which version of the story, which stream should we accept? That is yet to be answered in this. Should we take Mu 5, Mu 6, Mu 7, three together? Which one is the preserved and errant and fallible? Or do we just take Erasmus's work on it as that's the done deal when we have Codex D, which has the story? But if you compare this, the wording in Codex D, it's not identical to what's in the TR today. That's the point. There's so many variances. We've got it in Luke's gospel, and it actually lines up and makes clearer sense in some of the wording and how it's introduced at the beginning again. So we're saying, well, it belongs here because the empirical evidence is there. But the empirical evidence of those manuscripts don't even read the same with each other. They don't start in the same place. They don't mention the same details. We got, we're talking about manuscripts that are stitched into readings. We're talking about church fathers who are citing the story, not identical, none of which Didymus did not mention adultery. Papias did not mention adultery. They just said sins, many sins, cotton sin. We don't have enough there to say definitely the version we have in our Bible today is the exact one that God preserved from John's pen because there's not enough consistency in what we do have. All right. Hey, thank you for those responses. I think that uh, it, that's a, a very good point on both sides to be able to bring out and draw out. I think it obviously is going to be relevant to the conversation. So we've got two more calls, three minutes left to go. So... Uh, this is Jonathan Beasley. Go ahead whenever you're ready with your question. This is for Jeff Riddle. Um, you made mention that the reformers had their eclectic method embrace um, at that particular. You react today and you see that there's not enough basis uh, or not enough information to really put it together. But it would appear to me that they had less uh, manuscript than with the reformers. They have more so today. It doesn't seem to be very consistent. And um, I was wondering if you could speak to that and why you put the weight on what the reformers did with less evidence and less on what we have today, uh, less weight on what we have today with more textual evidence. Yeah. Well, actually, first, first of all, I don't think I don't think we necessarily assume that they had less. We don't know. Like a lot of people will say Erasmus had this number of manuscripts. We don't know. And, and so we can't say that we can't say that with certainty. Um, and then the other thing is, I, I, it, it also might be incorrect to say, oh, we have so, so much more because I, I know uh, I, I wrote a review recently of Peter J. Williams book on the gospel. And he talks about uh, he calls Erasmus, you know, the smartest man in the world. And he goes on about how, you know, Erasmus pretty much knew everything about the textual variations in the New Testament that we know today. 
I, I commend that his book to you. I wouldn't agree with Peter J. Williams, but it's a very interesting take that he has on what Erasmus knew. And uh, I, I think it's the I don't want to misquote it. I think it's the it's uh, the opening 20 verses of John. You know, they're exactly the same. Uh, must not be through verse because I think there's a there's variation at verse 18. Maybe it's the first 15 verses. You know, it's exactly the same in the majority text, the modern critics, the Texas Rufus. Um, so uh, I don't think we should we should um, you know exaggerate uh, some of those differences. But I would will say differences. Men of that year. First of all, Erasmus was influential in the providence of God, the Textus Receptus, but there were Protestant godly men, scholars, Stephanus, Beza, Calvin, other godly men who were looking at this. And I do think that they lived in a in a in, in a, a an era that was uh, providentially significant. And I, I think we, we t- if we're Protestants, don't we think that the Reformation was something significant? Don't, don't we think that there was a reclaiming of the doctrine of justification by faith? I think it was also a time, a providential time for, uh, for the scriptures to be properly defined and properly uh, printed in a stable format for the first time in Christian history. And, um, and, and, and those men were not operating under, with a modern worldview. Uh, I, I wrote a review recently of Grantley McDonald's book on um, uh, early modern criticism, and he makes the, he uses the categories from, from Foucault that uh, the, the men from before the Enlightenment had a pre-critical episteme, and the men after the Enlightenment have a, a modern episteme. And, uh, and those men were not just using, they, th- those men were not using the same reasoned eclecticism that's being used by modern scholars today. Uh, they were taking into consideration also the whole history of Christianity. And so I think that they, uh, everything's new doesn't mean it's better or better than what was in the past. And I think they're, 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 there's uh, what they did is more commendable than what c- what could be done today. All right. Hey, Dr. Boyce, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, uh, we, we do. We know how much just about that Erasmus did cite that he listed in. And overall, we know that the TR is based on no more than 20 that documented manuscripts. And the earliest of those that are documented, and I, and I keep emphasizing words because context means virtually nothing in this discussion that are documented. There's less than 20, the earliest of which is 12th century. Erasmus was a very great scholar. Nobody denies that. He's probably one of the best in the Greek language learned much later in life at 30 years old. He finally learned Greek later in life, not early. He was tremendous. None of us look at Erasmus and say he did a terrible job. I think he did a great job with what he had. And he certainly would have loved to have manuscripts that were within 100 years of the original autographs. They desired older manuscripts. He thought he had a manuscript that was much, much older, and he ended up being wrong about that. Erasmus was very familiar with the text that he had and used what he had. And no, I don't think the Reformation was about the text uh, necessarily as much as the content of the text. The Reformation was getting back to doctrine, all of which those same doctrines the Reformers stood for 
were found in all of the manuscripts that we've discussed from all the regions we're talking about west out in in in, um, in the east or down in Egypt or Caesarea, you can find those same documents. And Luther did not reform using a TR. He reformed studying Latin and studying his work. In fact, he was a strong proponent of Trinitarian doctrine, and yet he did it with a Textus Receptus second edition of Erasmus that did not even contain 1 John 5, 7 in it, and yet he still defended it. So the doctrine was key of the Reformation. If Luther can defend the Trinity without 1 John 5, 7 in his own German Bible, then it really wasn't so much about the text, the Reformation. And if we say it's about the text, then I think we've missed the Reformation. It's about getting back to justification by faith in the authority of Scripture. I'm not saying Scripture was not important. But if but we the, can't the define, but if we can't define what Scripture is, we, don't, we have no basis for ministry or doing theology. If we can define the basis of scripture, if we can't define what scripture is, then how can we do theology? We have to have a, a, a canon, and a canon is not just the books, a canon is the text of those books. And so that's why did, did, did Mark Luther defend the Trinity without first John 5 7 in the German Bible? The answer is yes. So yes, I think the text is important, absolutely. But and, was, the, and was the Coma Ioanneum added later on to the to the uh, Lutheran Bible after uh, Erasmus had added it in 1522? And did his Bible also have Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and all the triadic references sure. to the Trinity? Of course, and Erasmus did. continued. And Erasmus continued to argue that the, the reading was not authentic. He, he stated that he still didn't think the reading belonged. He definitely put it in, but he didn't put it in because he believed it was authentic. Again, We're getting, far, we're getting so far away from the PA. Yeah. Uh, all right. Hey, I appreciate that, guys. This is going to be our last question for the night, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, this has, once again, been a really good conversation. Thank you, guys, for being willing to do it. If you could, call or state your name and who your question is to, and you're going to wrap it up for us tonight. My name is Joe Ham, and the question is for Dr. Riddle. I am uh, very subject to the confessional text position, but I have the question of if, if we're willing to accept a reconstructionist text based on the eclectic method at the time of the Reformation, based on God's providence, is there any room for God's providence working today, or could there be any room for God's providence working today among believing textual scholars and if so, what presupposition should they uh, perhaps adopt or find or that's it? Well, I mean, there's one thing for sure, that God is a providential God. So God is working providentially. So it's, it's not as though God is not working providentially. I just don't think it's, I, I just don't think it's the, the, the task of modern text critics to reconstruct the text. I think we have a text. We have a text that we have received. And I, I, I don't think we need to continue to... to uh, I've been part of a, 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 a roundtable the last couple of weeks uh, uh, with the Confessional Bibliology Group, and we were looking at John 118. And there, there came a period of time in the 19th century when uh, going back to Cotton Horde and others, they wanted to change 118 from only begotten son to, uh, you know, uh, only God or only begotten God. And that had that, that had some, you know, novelty for about 100 years. 
But now the, the pendulum is swinging back. I mean, even the Tyndall House Greek New Testament has gone back to the traditional reading, the only begotten son. And part of that's because a lot of the systematicians pointed out that uh, the the modern critical text reading is problematic theologically with respect to the doctrine of God, with respect to eternal generation of the son. And there are, a lot, there are things like that, I think, actually the men of the Reformation age um, had a great sensitivity for and small c Catholic Christianity, creedal Christianity, um, uh, the, the Christianity that was hammered out in the ecumenical creeds. And I, I don't think we have men of that caliber today. And again, if we if if we have the providentially preserved word, um, we don't need to keep tinkering with it. We don't need to keep trying to improve it. I'm not looking for any manuscript discoveries to change the text of Scripture. And I, I think if, if this is going to be, this, this approach has been largely detrimental to traditional Christianity in the West. This, it's undermining the, 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 the epistemological foundations of the faith. And people are leaving us in droves because of it. And so it's, it's time for us to give up on this modern enterprise that's become a postmodern enterprise of attempting to reconstruct the text. And we need to have the received text and then worry about exegeting it, preaching it, evangelizing, um, and, and, and give up this uh, the, the, the modern uh, text industrial complex. All right. Thanks for that, Dr. Riddle. And uh, Dr. Boyce, do you have a response to that? Yeah. <clears throat> we, we believe in the pros providence and preservation as well. I believe in God's providence. And in his providence, he also allowed us to find manuscripts that are very close in the writing of the apostles. That's in his providence. It wasn't by accident as much as these other things were providence. Uh, the statement is we have a text. Well, what we know, what we have is a tradition. There's a massive difference. Yes, there's a text, but it was based on a tradition of copied manuscripts predominantly in one section of the world. And in that tradition, that tradition doesn't stand with itself. No two Texas Recepti read identically. There are no two Texas Recepti. People say, I hold to the TR. Which edition? Which of Beza, Erasmus, Stephanus, Scrivener? Uh, which one is it that you hold to? Because they don't have identify. the prick pay adult. You've had your time, Dr. Riddle. Um, what we have is a tradition. And those traditions aren't consistent with themselves. Yes, they have the PA, but we're talking about now a finality of why touch a text that's already done. Um, people are leaving in droves is what stated. I can tell you that numerous people that I've worked with that are leaving in droves and becoming atheistic or following Bart Ehrman's thinking to extreme levels of skepticism where they don't even know if they believe in God or in the scriptural, grew up in a TR movement to realize that what they were taught of the TR was inconsistent and not able to be substantiated. And the PA is one of the most common brought questions on the validity of the New Testament because it can be seen as a later edition in a lot of these manuscripts and the inconsistencies. Issues being talked about. The people that are leaving in droves are leaving because they struggle to accept texts like we are, because they refuse to accept that just because something's 
spiritually in the Reformation, which it did, settled the deal for everybody, fixed all the inconsistencies, fixed all the variances, fixed all the differences, and fixed all the citations. They don't accept that. And because of that, they choose not to believe faith and faith. They choose to go with evidence. And unfortunately, they go to the cliff and jump off instead of re-examining it from a different perspective. Wow. All right. I think that's a good way to sum up our debate. I think the differences are clear. Um, obviously, guys, if you've considered this particular passage uh, and you're interested in this topic, uh, there, there's, you've probably got a pretty strong opinion about why you believe what you believe about the Bible, whether it's a critical text or whether it's the TR. Uh, but at the end of the day, guys, I think it comes down to uh, this topic of preservation. Where's God at in the conversation? What is God doing throughout history? What is the church and Christians used and received throughout church history? And, and for me, guys, obviously, you know where I stand on this. I'm, I'm a TR guy. I believe, I believe that that's, uh, that's where God has preserved His Word. And the same question for me when we're talking about the TR and arguments against the TR, it's, it's, it's something that goes right back to the critical text as well. It's like, well, which TR? Well, which critical text? You know, at the end of the day, it's like, man, well, which one is God using to me? So anyways, hey, Stephen Boyce, thank you for coming on. Jeff Riddle, thank you for coming on, guys. Um, you guys represented your positions very well. I think it's a good a good way for people, uh, whether they're in the middle or on both sides or one side or the other, to, to kind of um, to weigh some options they probably haven't ever heard before, some arguments they haven't heard before. So thanks again for coming on, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Well, and I'll catch up with you guys later. Let me cut to our closing scene. I'll give you an update what's coming up, and we'll go from there. So, well... I would go from there. <laughs> My music's not playing. Uh, that's all right. Let me put the ticker up. I want, I want you guys to be able to see this. Sorry about that. Uh, doesn't work so well. All right. So, uh, upcoming weeks on the 23rd this Saturday, Dr. James Snap Jr. is going to be coming on the show, and we're going to have a discussion on text criticism. I'm sure we'll do some reflection on this debate tonight, uh, as well as some other things that we were going to follow up from our, our last discussion, so stay tuned for that. The 31st is a Eucharist debate with Matthew Broderick, a Catholic, and uh, we'll be debating the necessity of the sacrament for salvation. The 7th, I'll be debating Stephen Boyce, who is in this debate, this video, on uh, total inability, and then the 14th is an eschatology debate with Stacy Turbinville. So I'm pre-trib, pre-mill, and Stacy is going to be full preterist. So uh, that'll be an interesting debate as well. So stay tuned. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you've been able to weigh both sides of the conversation, and I hope you've been challenged at the end of the day. If you've never heard uh, some of the arguments that were presented, um, whether it was from the callers or through Jeff or through Stephen, I hope that you'll, you will prayerfully consider um, whether or not uh, your position on the text is correct. So, And that goes for both sides. I mean, at the end of the day, um, God will lead and guide us into all truth. And I think that when it comes to his word, he takes it very seriously. It's, it is his heart, uh, and, and we should stick our heart as close to his heart as possible. And I think that's, that's got a lot to say with the word of God. So anyways, guys, thanks for tuning in. Please like and share this and subscribe on YouTube. Help us get the word out and help us to continue to be able to kind of do debates and discussions like this. Um, so thanks again. God bless and have a good night.